Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. IDM Podcast. International Women's Day is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. Taking place on the 8th of March, this day aims to foster action for accelerating gender parity. According to the International Women's Day website, this day is one of the most important of the year for four reasons. Celebrating women's achievements, raising awareness about women's equality, lobbying for accelerating gender parity, and fundraising for female-focused charities. However, criticism arose towards this day, maintaining that every day must be Women's Day and those challenges must be fought all year long. So, do we actually need Women's Day? Indeed, women's rights gained a lot during the past decades and in most countries they are now able to vote, work or own their own property. Please, not another podcast about women. What more should they possibly demand? No doubt, there is still a lot to be done for women's rights in 2021. October 2020. Poland's top court banned almost all abortion terminations. Because yes, women's reproductive rights, equal pay, women's genital mutilations, casual sexism, discrimination and many other challenges are still remaining today. One other example. Austria has one of the highest gender pay gaps of Europe, 19.6%, just after Estonia, Germany, Czechia and until last year, the UK. Let me put it another way around. In Austria, in comparison to men, women are working around two months for free per year. Again, this is one example among others and we must continue to stand up for women's rights. But before discussing this subject, let's have a look to the historical origin of International Women's Day. International Women's Day takes its roots in 1909 in New York, with a National Women's Day organized by the Socialist Party of America demanding shorter hours, better pay and voting rights. This reached the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. In 1910, the International Conference of Working Women was held in Copenhagen and agreed on an International Women's Day. Consequently, International Women's Day was honored for the first time in Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland on the 19th of March 1911. More than 1 million people protested over those four countries, with around 300 demonstrations within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in Vienna, women paraded on Ringstrasse. During the following years, this day was moved officially to the 8th of March. On the same day of the Gregorian calendar, 1917, Russian women's textile workers began a demonstration in Petrograd. This led to the February Revolution, which hand-in-hand hand with the October Revolution triggered the Russian Revolution. 
More than that, during the same year, the provisional government granted women the right to vote, making Russia the first major world power to do so. Several other achievements for women were made in the last century following the line drawn by this day and by the different waves of feminism. In 1996, the UN declared the first annual theme for the International Women's Day, celebrating the past, planning the future. This is still happening every year on, and this year the theme is Women in Leadership Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Then I had a chat about this International Women's Day with Daniela, Federica and Malvina, all colleagues from the IDM. Especially we discussed how we feel about this date, how we learned about it and how it is represented in our home countries, Austria, Italy and Poland. Coming from France, I always saw a dichotomy regarding this day. A dichotomy between a day of marketing with promotion on makeup items or even period items but also a day of protest, discussions and fights for women's rights. Of course, women must claim every day for their rights, but it felt like in France, this day is the occasion to claim it even louder. But let's hear what the others have to say about it. Well, I learned the first time about Women's Day in Russia when I spent some, some time there and 10 years ago and because there were a lot of flowers all in the streets and I got some flowers from some colleagues and I was really disturbed or kind of uh, surprised that there was even such a day I have never heard about it and then I also learned that we have this actually officially in Austria and I think it came became more visible in, in recent years but it's still as you said it's commercialized mainly and it's mainly some kind of symbolic event for, for employees, for example, to, to put their, their women in front and to, to invite them for a brunch, for example. I experience this very often. But um, the funny thing is that for this brunch, only women come together, you know, which is kind of nice, sure. But the networking you would need as, woman, as a woman is not just to, to network among women, but mainly with the old white men that are in the positions, you know, to, to really... Uh, help you for your career as well so Malvina you told us as well with your experience in Poland is it on the same level as Austria or is it more important I think in comparison to Austria it is more important uh, so I remember that I always received flowers or small gifts from men in the family from my father um, also from colleagues or even my, my boss sometimes I also receive wishes from friends male friends it is a, an important day in Poland, but it's still not what it used to be during the communist times when it was a very important day. Nowadays, some perceive it as a relic of communist past. So to some extent, it lost its importance. But I think this year, it will be very different for the first time in decades because the situation of women in Poland changed dramatically when it comes to access to abortion. Abortion is nearly banned in Poland. So it was already um, announced that this would be a day of anger, a day of wrath, a day of protest. And there will be demonstrations, I think, for the first time on such a scale on the 8th of March. So we are, in a way, going back 
to the origins of this day, you know, and we are standing up for our rights in Poland. This is what it means to Poland this year, I would say. I also think that uh, when it comes to International Women's Day, yes, okay, okay, we need one, but only if it can be the starting point of um, of a general consideration and where we try to understand which are the challenges we have to tackle and which are the strengths we have to reinforce. If it's not an occasion where we try to evaluate how the process went, went so far, then I don't think we, we even need to an International Women's Day. As you said, do we actually need International Women's Day? What is missing to the discussion? So, Daniela, would you like to share your thoughts? What do you think about it? Well, I think, unfortunately, we need such days, apparently, in public discourse. From the perspective of media, I mean, from my own experience in media, I know that it's very good to have such general occasions to, to bring some topics into the, the newsroom and to get heard and to even get your topics through. Unfortunately, we still need it, yes. It would be great, of course, to if we can if we can also talk about such topics uh, throughout the whole year and take it as seriously also on the level of companies and, and, and organizations. I mean, there's a reason why we do this podcast here today, mm-hmm. because it's Women's Day. So... Um, why can't we do this also in another day and why not focus on the topics also in a discussion together with men, not just we women in a, in a room together. You know? mm-hmm. I think that's missing. I, I miss the dialogue very much in Austria as well. I mean, I agree. And to me, this, this day is a reminder in a way yeah. uh, that we are still in a process. As Daniela said, we need to include men in it because it's a dialogue and men are part of the solution. So... Again, I see this day when out of a sudden everyone hears about those issues that maybe are missing throughout the year. I also learned a lot from media, from Polish media on that on that day about even inequalities that still exist because this is emphasized. I think we need it also because very often women aren't aware of some of their rights or they aren't aware that our or other women are in similar situation or also struggling or facing similar challenges. And we also need it because sometimes men may also not be aware of certain challenges that we are facing. Because one thing is, well, they are in in our shoes. That's the first thing. And if we don't talk to them about it, if we don't share our perspectives, how they are supposed to know? And also maybe we should try to implement things differently, which we make the difference for sure. But it's also going to the cultural basics and how society is bonded because... If we don't change the mentalities, we won't be able to change the things which are there and that we actually want to change. Absolutely. I think this is what Judith said in this interview and also what I read about Poland, right? That uh, during communism, like out of a sudden women could work, they needed per- they didn't need permission and uh, horizontally it worked great, right? I was telling girls last time that there were uh, questionnaires in the 60s in Poland if men are happy with this, this, the way the situation goes, that there are so many women that are active on the job market, and 80 or 88% said no, this leads to troubles, to arguments, and they, don't, they have no time to take care of children, cook, and you know, clean the house. Malvina ended this talk here by mentioning the horizontal versus the vertical contribution of women 
during and after state socialism in Poland. This point was also made by the Hungarian sociologist and journal studies expert Judith Achaidi during an interview held by Federica few days before our team chat. Due to the Marxist idea of a full employment, women could easily access to labor market and to education. Would you say that they were in a better position compared to women in other countries? Or as Eastern European society achieved a higher level of gender equality, it was just a myth? Very, very good question. But you see, if we compare the um, gender relation, the gender equality figures, it's usually a compound figure that has several elements. And the um, actual rate in the employment is one element. Women's education is again, one element. And in these regards, you are absolutely correct that these societies really achieve quite well developing, increasing presence of women in both education and in the labor market. That's really true. And even until the 1970s, for example, women's employment rates were higher in these countries, like, for example, in the Western countries. That's absolutely true. But if we follow the several more steps or several more elements of a gender equality figure, like, for example, in the World Economic Forum, they every year launch their list where they compare the countries of uh, according to gender equality. And they also use several other aspects, like, for example, women's rate in management and in political decision making. And during state socialism, however, women were educated, they were in the labor market, they didn't become to the managerial positions, neither in politics, nor in economic life, neither in culture or science even. You see that is very remarkable that the so-called uh, vertical and horizontal segregation of the labor market both, how shall I say, resulted that women became in a less advantageous position, subordinated, for example. For example, according to the professions, more women were present in those uh, territories which were less paid, like nursing, teaching, caring, even, even if they were employed, and they were professionals and educated and very well skilled. They had, uh, compared to men's jobs, these were lower paid sectors in the economy. And the vertical uh, hierarchy, they were absolutely under the, um, the positions fulfilled by men. And in political life during state socialism, however, you had the uh, women in parliament, because they were delegated by the party, there was only one party, so there was no elections that, anyhow, women, women were uh, presented there as members of the parliament, but in the central committee, in the leadership of the party, in the positions of ministerial, you couldn't find only one or two women. So, this is very important legacy that you see the unemployment, 
struck the society after, after the transition, but it affected both men and women. But the, the uh, secondary position of uh, women in public life, in management, in the marketplace, is a legacy. It is continuing, going on, going on. And we haven't even, haven't even mentioned the gender relations in private life. If, uh, if the subordination of women or the traditional roles in the family responsibilities in the uh, caring uh, and family uh, division of labor, they were not uh, really challenged by socialism. That was structural advancement, as you said, as you mentioned, for women's educations and their activity in the labor market. But in the mentality, patriarchal mentality did not become challenged. This is very interesting. And I wanted also to ask you, in your paper, Urges and Obstacles, Chances for Feminism in Eastern Europe, you argue that the emancipation process took place differently between Western and Eastern Europe, and that somehow feminism was seen as a Western ideology. It had a relatively narrow social base. It attracted only um, educated, urban, and middle-class women. Do you think that this influence, these factors influenced the creation of the identity of the women movements? And how did this identity change over time? You see, I think the emancipation process did not start in the 20th century. It started in the late 18th century, but then became, women became really organized. That's the mid 19th century. And at that point, there was no difference, I would say, even, even in this so-called less developed and uh, peripheric country like, like Hungary. But I think the progressive movements and the process of women's emancipation, I would argue that they went parallel in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And it's very exciting to see that how women's organizations uh, were in very, very strong cooperation and international um, networking, like for example, the um, International Women's Suffrage Alliance. When we go deep into the um, archive material of the turn of the century feminist movement in Hungary, it turns out that it's absolutely the opposite, that it was very well rooted, very well connected with different other social groups. They thematized all the issues concerning women's employment, uh, women's identities, women's subordination, but things concerning prostitution or uh, violence against women. So really modern issues, but it became silenced later. So despite the having a strong uh, identity, we can see even nowadays that many women still believe that their disadvantaged condition is related to their nature and not to the social context they live in. And this is a problem because somehow they think that their difficulties is related to, to their nature. So it's not something they have the urge to change or to fight for. So we have a paradox. 
We have women movement is perceived as an attack to traditional family and to the natural order and is not the expression of a widespread social injustice. Why do you think that many women still perceive emancipation as a threat to their status? When I think in the ex, uh, ex Soviet bloc countries, we speak about the vision or people's understanding of women's emancipation, it is a very strong influence that it, it still comes to people's minds that, okay, thank you, we had enough of emancipation. We don't want to be the fellow comrades in the class war, sorry. We don't want it. And they don't, don't have a different vision, maybe pre-Second World War vision of women's emancipation, that you are a fellow citizen. You are a fellow citizen. And it has nothing to do with, with uh, being against the family or being against men. No, emancipation means, means that it is the lack of discrimination so you shouldn't be discriminated at the workplace, in political life, in cultural position, in the way you are portrayed, you are represented in the media. So you shouldn't be discriminated. This is emancipation. But being emancipated is also a state of mind. And uh, many social scientists argue that uh, in the societies under state socialism, civilian virtues that you are a citizen you are you have your basic human rights were unfortunately not present neither for men nor for women and uh, so as a citizen you were you were not emancipated and it's 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 a secondary how shall i say subordination that as a woman you were even under this uh, recognition. So even in a more difficult position that you can uh, recognize your position as someone, someone having her full rights and uh, positions and possibilities. So very often uh, women might be afraid of, uh, if they say, I agree with emancipation, or I would like to be emancipated, or I would like to so support feminism. They are afraid that they are a target of a criticism that they are not proper women because they forget about their responsibilities. So they, it's again a shift of the, these discourses did not happen because uh, that narrative of feminism, which was present after, let's say, Simone de Beauvoir, which very clearly uh, points at the, what is the male gaze, what is the vision of the patriarchal point of view, how we see ourselves even as women, and how can we get rid of it? The second wave feminism in the Western countries wanted to get rid of the patriarchal vision of on society, on gender roles, on gender relations, on women themselves, even though obviously Simone de Beauvoir was translated in the 1960s, mind you, in Hungary, but was not uh, reprinted even after, and very few people discuss what's in it. And there's not a context for, uh, for such a 
such a new identity and women thinking their position as women thinking thinking over of course it's mandatory in these circumstances we are living a final question would be do you think that this covid pandemic emergency is going to affect the the discussion on women's rights despite the achievements of the last decades what is your your opinion about it the recent pandemic strengthened several several um part several elements of this crisis so there are certain things which became really crucial and even more critical and uh, obviously losing one's job during the epidemic is is a very serious fact and i just had a quick look at the statistics obviously more more women were uh, unfortunately affected by this and uh, what is really more crucial that what what was the situation at home because of the lockdowns and because uh, there was no um, schools and edu education only on the online uh, digital uh, world so this put incredible burdens on women's shoulder and if uh, you get into surveys or uh, research that is based on uh, on uh, interviews in i think equally in every country they show that for example the um, education at home of kids because they couldn't go to school was mostly women's uh, responsibility but women don't seem to have uh, further steps now at least in hungary for a wider solidarity on their gender identity and uh, i can't really see now um a turning point or an entry point uh to to address more women and involve them in rethinking of their position following what judith said the covid-19 pandemic crisis turned into a societal crisis The first tragic fact is the increase of domestic violence during the first lockdown. Also, women were the most affected in terms of job losses. There were also the ones who had to quit their job to take care of children's education or assist elderly people. The number of unpaid jobs in the care and assistance sphere increased dramatically, putting extra pressure on women between professional life, childcare and the management of the household. But let's face the truth here. The COVID-19 pandemic did not start a societal crisis in which women and let's not here forget the LGBT+ community were the first affected. The COVID-19 pandemic sadly and simply escalated. Talking about the situation of women in the labor market. Malvina comes from Poland but has been living and working in Vienna for years now. So I asked her about her surprises regarding the job market when she moved to the country and also about the differences she realized between Austria and Poland. So I think what surprised me at first was that so many women work part-time because in Poland it's it's different. Usually women work full-time. What also surprised me was that the gender pay gap 
is so high in Austria because it's about 20%, whereas in Poland that's 8-9%. One of the explanations for that could be that yeah, women work full-time in Poland and also that there are many more women working as engineers or um, scientists. So in those professions that actually translate into better paid jobs on the job market. Uh, but there's also another side of this coin in Poland because um, about 35% of women don't work at all, which is quite also quite a high number. Whereas in Austria, more women are active on the market, just at part-time. So I would say there are two extremes here. Like on the one hand, you have 35% of women who don't work at all in Poland. I mean, they probably take care of their sick relatives or their homestay moms, you know, so it doesn't mean that they do nothing. Yeah, It's unpaid work. So sorry for putting it this way previously. But on the other hand, you have also many women who are, for example, managers. And let me open a bracket here about unpaid work. Housework, nursing and care work are all activities that, viewed globally, are mainly performed by women, mostly unpaid and often not even considered as an actual job. And those represent 12 billion hours per year. And now let's move on to the last inside of this podcast. Daniela focused as a researcher on protest movements in authoritarian regimes and observed past and present demonstrations in CEE. I asked her about the various patterns she identified regarding gender while observing those protests. Thank you very much for this question because I, I find the developments at the moment very interesting and also concerning, of course, when, when we look at protests in Poland or in Hungary. Sometimes these are very concrete women protests. Sometimes it's, uh, it's another um, a topic in, in front or some other civil unrest. But um, what is kind of a specific pattern, what I observe is that this nationalist populism uh, and their attitude towards women and their attacks toward women, which I find very concerning because when we see, we, we talk a lot about illiberalism and, and, and autocratic uh, regimes there, but we maybe don't talk enough about what, what that it means on, on a societal level to, to have this backlash of conservatism, you know, and populist, national populists tend to, to put the, the family, the Christian values and the family values or the values of core families uh, in front. And uh, what does it actually mean for, for the women um, in, in this regard, women uh, are, are kind of symbols of the nation. Uh, their main role is to be part of this family. Their main role is to procreate and to, to play their natural role as they, as they ta uh, take it. And uh, if they don't play along, uh, if they protest, if they find the, let's say, abortion, abortion rights are so more important than, than this... Um, conservative goal of, of fighting the demography, then they are enemies of the state or enemies of the nation. And uh, this is very dangerous because you make a huge part of the population enemies, you know, and this is uh, starting a, a kind of a, even a cultural war that uh, is completely uh, artificial, actually. It's, it's instrumentalized by, by nationalist populists and it's very dangerous and I think we have to do much more research on this and, and also have public debate on 
if we really do want this for, for society. We are now arriving at the end of our podcast focusing on women's rights and International Women's Day within a Central European perspective. As we said before, there is still a lot to be done and we must keep fighting and talking about those challenges no matter the day of the year. But International Women's Day remains an important tool to stress those issues and the solutions we could implement. On top of that is remembering what happened during the past and that still what we have today can't be taken for granted. Women's emancipation is still a main challenge in 2021. Judith Achaidi said it perfectly. Emancipation means the lack of discrimination, but being emancipated is also a state of mind. We must look to how things are socially constructed within the broad spectrum of cultures, historical legacies and material realities. Here is a common fight. The one for justice writes a world that is equal and for that all genders must come together. Thank you very much for listening. This was an IEM podcast with the participation of Judith Achaidi, Daniela Norbachar, Federica Menjamelli, Malvina Talik and Emma Honchebery. See you soon. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.